0: Colossians chapter 3 in your scriptures this morning. It's great to hear and see all of you. Tremendous encouragement to each other. I know, you certainly are to me. I know you've had time recently to pray for our students returning to school. For those teachers filling lecterns teachers from our own church, filling lecterns in our own community, online community, dedicating their service and their vocations to the Lord for eternal purposes, and so we want to remind those students returning here for school, that uh, from out of the area, welcome back to you, and uh, our prayers remain with you as you endeavor to step into a new school year, good to see all of you again. I'm looking forward to a couple semesters of worship and fellowship and service together. For those of you who are guests, we are just taking a handful of sermons here just to preach some things that have been, it's just on my heart from various texts in relationship to um, how the Lord's grown us as a body in the last several years together just give thanks to the Lord for how he's done so. The last time we were together, we discussed the the nature, really, and the theology of of our identity in Christ, and we live in a world that's certainly in an identity crisis. Globally, many have joined um, waving flags and filling uh, secular and even religious pulpits with identity issues, and I would just like to um, offer thanks to the Lord for those who are here, who are faithful and loyal to the cause of Christ, for for choosing to view each other first as children of God, before you view them in any other way. Uh, Certainly unity and harmony of the body is maintained only when we do that. So I'd like to just talk about that harmony. How is that, the harmony of that unity maintenance from a very familiar text to many of you this morning. And uh, we'll do that as we, as we move along here. Uh, but we do look forward to that prayer conference in, uh, in September. Uh, it'd be wonderful if if your schedule allows it Uh, for the auditorium on wednesday evenings to be as full as it is now just to join in a concert of prayer for four weeks as these men exposit god's word and and then we all pray together and or pray with our disciples or with our groups after they preach looking forward to that and uh, we also have a baptism coming up in september we look forward to anyone who else who wants to participate in obeying in that way, we'd love to have you do that. Let's pray as we dive in this morning. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you for adopting us into your family and sealing us into the day of redemption by your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that um, by his help, we can examine your word and understand it and apply it this morning as we study I pray Lord that by your grace we would all uh, starting with anyone who teaches or preaches the word here understand that um, it is exclusively the spirit of God that indwells us who is our divine tutor to understanding the significance of the truth of any um, any part of scripture that we meditate upon We admit, Lord, our complete and total dependence upon Him this morning and helping us understand how to maintain this unity in a divine and harmonious way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I suppose among the young people, uh, let's say high school, college, and career, I could start a chicken war this morning very easily by having you all come up front and tell us why you think Chick-fil-A is better than Cane's (laughs) or why Cane's is better than Chick-fil-A. We're not going to do that. That would get pretty emotional pretty quickly. (laughs) I suppose I could start a coffee war pretty easily by people deciding whether they like Dunkin' or... I've seen and heard a few passionate discussions about various food preferences. Back in my day, it was burger wars. I don't think those are even a thing anymore. If you want the best burger in the world, you just have to visit my home on a Saturday night and I'll grill you up. That'll settle any wars if they still exist. Um, this was the thing when I was in college in a Christian college uh, there was actually Christian college wars sadly enough you know I look back at <laughs> those conversations I just shake my head and just kind of hang my head then, in shame that I was even remotely a part of those I don't know, there's probably Ivy League school wars, right? I'm a Harvard man, or I'm a Yale man. That's a big deal in that part of the country, I suppose. We get involved with passionate discussions about anything as light as chicken or coffee, and going into even deeper things like choice of Christian education and or in our recent rear view mirror, view the, the Bible version debates, right? Among other philosophical and theological things that we debate where the, the mercury of our emotions begins to spike and we, we become dismissive of probably the most important reality of our existence as believers is that our primary and exclusive identity should be in one person and one person alone. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The unity and harmony of our existence as bodies of Christ all over the world in the last 36 months has been tested like in no time in recent history. I suppose that unity and harmony has always been tested and always will be tested in the New Testament times. There were pretty heated debates and divisions over silly things like which Sunday morning speaker do you like better than the other? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As Paul approaches the divisiveness that had crept into the Corinthian body, Paul addressed other religious factions that we're well aware of in Ephesians 2 and even practical factions like we see Philemon as Onesimus has been separated from Philemon because of Onesimus' pre-conversion actions against Philemon and we even see two believers struggling to get along in Philippians chapter 4 with Iodia and Syntyche so I guess the church is is not immune to um, a lack of unity it's not immune to um, not enjoying a a harmonious environment all the time but we do know from scripture that any remedy for divisiveness or a lack of unity is only found in Jesus Christ and understanding who he is and his person and what he's done for us and who he is in us and through us that's the only answer he's the only answer The little church in Colossae was likewise not immune to these religious identity issues. That's why Paul addresses the sufficiency of Christ in the doctrinal portion of this book, in chapters 1 and 2, and it reminds those divided over religious identity issues that they all have received Christ, chapter 2 and verse 6. We saw that last time. That they all have been buried with Christ, chapter 2 and verse 20. And then moving on into the practical portion of Paul's writing to the Colossians in chapters 3 and 4, he reminds the believers in Colossae that they have been risen with Christ and therefore they have something in common. It's Him, it's their living a countercultural life and living a love that has changed their lives and produced unity and harmony. The church at Colossae would have been a diverse church. A number of tribes, tongues, and nations would have represent, been represented among her. We'll see that a little bit later in chapter 3. And yet they had one person in common now, and that was Christ. Go back with me to chapter 1 and verse 24. She you hold your finger there in chapter 3. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, that in my flesh I do not share in behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions of this church. I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your behalf, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been made manifest to his saints, to whom God willed, to make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. It starts with Christ. It ends with Christ. It's all Christ. For this purpose, Paul says, also I labor, striving to his power, which mightily works within me. I suppose most first century churches were just like the Colossian church, Jews and Gentiles, many in varied pasts, but all now one in Christ. We are all from different states and different countries. Even in our auditorium this morning, that there's a blessed and unique togetherness we enjoy, and it's because we all share in the same Savior. We all have shared in the same spirit baptism. We all bask in the same adoption, being made children of God in Christ. We are all being saved out of this world in time to enjoy eternity with him and we all share one message and and one mission. The circumstances that we enjoy before salvation and those we endure and enjoy after our conversion no longer exclusively identify us. Our desire to identify with that which we feel good and right about can be scripturally okay to do, but it may never be at the expense of the why we exist together. We all know of the voices in our ears that have turned up the volume, seeking to gain our loyalty and our partnership. There's thousands of them, both ungodly and some full of common grace character. Those of good quality, I believe, for Bible-believing people are potentially the most harmful to the cause of the church. Pursuits of common grace messaging can so easily become the messaging of the people of God. They never be the primary message from our lips or the focus of our spiritual endeavors. For we are the church and we are one people with one mission and one message. These voices outside of our person that we worship and his purpose demand exclusive partnership. And again, though many be noble, it can cause, if we allow them, great disharmony. There's now even the preaching throughout the world that's not even messaging of common grace. If you don't join our league of partnership, if you don't submit to our loyalties, we're being told that we don't know what love is. The messaging of a significant part of our world now is love is love. And loving is affirming. Well, my friends, love is not love. God is love. And he has demonstrated his love in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we surrender our lives to him, as we've already said, he changes the way we live. So we have a common savior and we have a common countercultural lifestyle and we have a common why, a common mission and it's his mission. Second John 6 says that love is just simply obedience to God's command. Jesus said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The Colossian church knew oneness and then they knew disharmony. The noble pursuit that divided them was the law of God and its application to life. The very law of God, the Mosaic law, can cause disharmony, you say. It was never intended to do that, but it can and it has and it still does. We all know that if it can, if Christ is not properly understood, then we've got some issues at hand and various threads of Mosaism had crept back into the Colossian church and, and Paul's just reminding them it shouldn't be that way because your identity is not in the law of Moses, it's in the person who came to fulfill the law, Jesus Christ. If you look back at chapter 2 and verse 20 again, We've already cited this, but we'll read this. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, or do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement, and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. In other words, identifying with the law identifies you with a failed lifestyle. Whereas compared to identifying with Christ identifies you with a changed lifestyle. You actually do have the power to live over fleshly indulgences. You go back up to chapter 2 and verse 6. Therefore, if you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Here's newness of life, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your, in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So those are a couple of descriptions of how religion can even, things that appear wise, the text says, can cause disharmony among the body. The very nature of religion is to obtain wholeness before God by keeping of religious obligation and yet there's no control or no power over fleshly indulgence. Yet people today still passionately believe, even in the Christian church, that they can obey religious law and be right with God while living with no divine internal ability to walk away from what the Bible calls sinful lifestyle. So one thing is clear. There are forces inside and outside the church, whether religious or irreligious, that are demanding our allegiances And if they're adopted or they're flirted with can cause disharmony in the church. And I would like to say, based on the context of what we've seen here, both again, religious and irreligious influences, if there is disharmony in the church, it's typically because there are people in the church that are either flirting with and or given their lives to the pursuits of that which is religious or irreligious, whether it be ungodly or full of common grace. As their primary identity. So Paul sets forth in the book of Colossians the very simple but profound way we maintenance unity and harmony in the church. For those who have received Christ, died with Christ, have been risen with Christ, we know His life, we know his love, and that identity leads to our harmony. So we'd like to look at Colossians 3:12 to 17. Uh, This morning, years ago, we preached through this letter, and we've referenced it, like many other Bible books and various sermons, where it's necessary. We've even given you an outline of the practical portion of this letter before. Maybe you wrote it down. Right? We did so a few months back, actually. If you didn't write it down, that's okay. Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. That's the message of the doctrinal portion of this book. And then we find out that he's sufficient enough to influence our lives personally, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 3. Corporately, verses 12 to 17 of chapter 3, which is what we're going to look at this morning. Christ is sufficient enough to help us domestically, verses 18 to 21 of chapter 3. Christ is enough to help us vocationally know how to function in our jobs chapter, 20, chapter 3 verses 22 to chapter 4 and verse 1 and Christ is enough to help us understand what evangelism is how do we live his why now chapter 4 verses 2 through 6 Christ is just enough to influence every part of our living because he is our living in him and through him we have our being. Amen. We'll look at it in a little bit. The text says in verse 11, Christ is all and in all. He is our all. And so he is the reason why we do say anything. So let's read here verse 12 to 17. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, and put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. The word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in your hearts to god whatever you do in word or deed do all in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks through him to god the father i find it interesting here a number of authors seem to think the same thing that paul starts off this body portion of this book this this corporate portion of this book i really believe Verses 12 to 17 of chapter 3 are probably a worship context. So what does the body look like? How does it maintenance unity and harmony when it's together in a context of worship? And I think what he calls us has everything to do with help solidifying our identity in Christ. He actually uses three Old Testament labels for God's people as we begin here in verse 12. It's pretty powerful. So, as those who have been chosen there's the first title chosen of God and then holy and then beloved those who are saved in the Old Testament had those titles those who are the people of God in the New Testament have the same and we're asked to as God's chosen holy beloved people to do something here and what we're going to talk about we're asked to do I would just like to praise God because among the majority of you this is what we've seen in the last three years we'll describe that as we go along but put on as God's chosen ones I think we need to remember folks that there's none that does righteous no not one Romans 3 tells us that If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul kind of describes that. He says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in faith firmly, established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. There's the before and after look, all created in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that's our reality. So in this context of worship, we're called God's chosen ones. And we, we need to remember and continue to remember, as many of you have very, very well, that the story of the Bible, really, as one author I admire says, is a divine search for those who are hiding from God. Man is not looking for God, but God is looking for man. You're here worshiping this morning because of God's good choice and of God's good pleasure. You were chosen before the foundation of the world, and at this time... You are the representation of God's choice by his grace. And as God has found you, he's declared you holy. You are his holy ones. You have been given the ability by grace not to live in a worldly fashion, but to live holy before God and man. We are made new in Christ and called out of this world and called from the world to God in Christ and called for his glory and purpose. Peter says that you've been called a peculiar people. It is the countercultural element of the church that makes its appeal to the world in Christ. Paul says that we are no longer children of wrath, but we're made the children of God and, and we are light bearers, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses one through four so we're chosen we're, we're holy and the text says here that we're beloved we're beloved we have been made really the object of God's love that's what it's saying here 1 John 4 again we love him because he initiated love towards us and that will come into play a little bit later when you come to us forgiving each other Because the forgiveness of Christ is always an initiating love and forgiveness. So you're all seated among the chosen, the holy ones, and the dearly beloved of God in Christ. You have been, all of you, have been divinely identified. And in our context, you have been called to worship in harmony with one another. And this calling comes with some spiritual instruction regarding the protecting of this gift that God's given to us, this harmony and this unity by way of identity in Christ. So as the chosen, holy, and dearly beloved, it would be good for us to understand these things and yet one more thing By way of re-emphasis before we dive into the particulars of chapters 12 to 17, verses 12 to 17. Go back up to verse 10 of chapter 3. Paul says here that in the personal section of this book of Christ's transformation of each one of us, and we've put on a new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jews, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all, and he is in all. For all of us, there's a very clear description of our pasts and our spiritual presence, present there. One has made many one, And in this divine one, we live and move and have our existence. Christ is all and in all. He is everything about you. He is everything about me. He's the fullness of the Godhead bodily, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says. And he's made us one with him and the Father. This radically influences how we treat each other when we're together as a body. If we see each other Before we see him in us, we stand no chance at understanding the nature of unity and identity. Can I say that again? If we see each other before we see him, Christ in us, we don't stand a chance at understanding unity and harmony. You investigate my life long enough, you're going to find some trouble. And by investigate your life long enough, I'm going to find some things that maybe need fixed up a little bit. But when we approach one another in a context of worship, we're assuming Christ. Therefore, we're assuming the Spirit of God indwells us, and we have an opportunity to grow towards Christ-likeness together. And then we have an opportunity to worship and to relate with one another unto that end. Christ is everything in us and to us. And we enjoy fellowship and worship among one another only as we first enjoy him in us and among us. So really in a church that understands Christ as their exclusive identity and is growing in Christ like this and understands the fullness of the world, there is really nothing internal to us or external to us that can divide us. There's a couple qualifying statements there and then a very certain statement. If, really then, In other words, there's there's really nothing anyone could post on Facebook that sits over here that offends someone sitting way back over there. And that person way back over there automatically identifies them according to their post on Facebook as being that. And oh wow, how can they be a Christian and post that? And so the people way over there make up their minds saying, you know what? I'm glad they sit way over there because that's not me whether any one of us have posted anything of virtue or vice in the last 36 months the only way we make our way back to each other is in one person and it's jesus christ we're going to find out how in this text there is no thing there is no one inside of us or external to our body that can upset unity that can hinder harmony if we're spirit governed word saturated and functioning according to this text no thing or no one and if it does then there's some other conclusions we can draw scripturally but for those of you who are here this morning i think you've enjoyed striving to identify one another primarily in christ seeing him before you see us And may that continue to be. And may that increase more and more. I think a main verb in verses 12 to 17 is really found in verse 14. Put on love. This is what you've been doing. Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love is unity. Unity is love. As one author said, love is not a victim of our emotions, but a subject to our wills. We see posted all over the world definitions of what love is, and we've already addressed that. But God is love, and we are to put on Him as He has placed us into Christ by Spirit baptism. Put on love. How's that done? Go back a little earlier. After we get done with the Old Testament titles for New Testament believers, how do we obey this verb? We're to put on a heart of compassion, verse 12. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another. All right, so we're supposed to put on compassion. And the ingredients of compassion are right there. So put on love, Be compassionate, and how do I do that? Well, it's, you be kind. There it is. Be kind to others. Is there anyone in this flock that you've not been kind to recently? Anyone in this flock that's not been kind to you? There's a fix for that. Go back to who Christ is in that person. And put on love. That's your job, which means you will be compassionate. And one of those ways you show compassion is you just be kind. I mean, how many public elementary schools? I mean, they're doing kindness campaigns. I mean, like everyone's trying to figure out how to be kind coming out of the last three years. My goodness, the church should have kindness down in spades. Among ourselves and outside of ourselves and be humble. Really, that has everything to do with the view of myself. If you're going to put on love and be, you're going to be kind and you're going to have a proper view of yourself, you're not going to think much of yourself at all. And He just says, your, your flesh may want to think a little highly of yourself, but love thinks nothing of you and everything of Christ in you. So as you walk around the church, are you parading self or are you exhibiting Christ? You see, folks, there's only one of two ways. How else do we demonstrate compassion? What are the ingredients of this compassion? Meekness. Well, we go from what our disposition should be in humility to what the disposition of Christ is. Meekness. And patience. And if you follow the grammar of the text, what is, what is patience? How is patience described here? The text says that we've already read, we, we bear with one another. Literally, the word means we endure difficulty. Powerful word next. Together because Christ is our together. He endured difficulty according to the will of his Father, and he loved us according to the will of his Father, and he's asked us to love each other the way Christ is loved. That means bearing with one another. My wife bears with me. She puts up with me. I mean, like, apparently, like, even this morning, she, she felt that I was a little too tense, a little bit too whatever. So I was, I was even out on my side porch this morning, and I was enjoying creation and the birds singing and the, and the warmth of the sun with my coffee, my Bible, and my, my iPad, and, and just reviewing the sermon this morning and praying, and, and I was still something about me that just wasn't quite white. She went came out. She went back in. She came back with these two little gummy vitamins. <laughs> All right? And she opened my mouth and put them in. And she says, this is to help with your stress and your fatigue. I thought I was doing pretty good. <laughs> she puts up with me. In marriage, that's what we do, right? Because of Christ. We like put up with each other. We we bear with one another. This is a a very clear way we demonstrate patience with this birth from compassion, which is a result of putting on love. We do this why? Because Christ loved us this way. And then the text says we forgive each other. Do you know that forgiveness is just as necessary for our soul as food is for our body? There's a reason why professing believers can't forgive. And it may be because they have not put on love under the identification of a single flag up the flagpole, which is the flag of Christ as our one and unique and true loyal person to us as we demonstrate our loyalty to him. C.S. Lewis said to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Another author said that forgiveness is simply this, excuse me, a lack of forgiveness is simply this. I have diminished in my own mind my sin against God while at the same time elevating someone else's sin against me. Love always seeks to forgive and be forgiven. And if we never get to that conversation then someone's not putting on love and compassion and demonstrating patience. And then the text goes on to say whoever has a complaint against anyone just as the Lord forgave you, forgive. That's simple, no? So if we don't put love on in this way, Of your own Holy Spirit conclusions, I suppose. My own journey on this has been quite a journey. I grew up in a very, very conservative Christian home. I've been a pastor for a little while of a very, very, very conservative Christian church. When you exist in that environment for a little over five decades of life, you learn loyalties. Lots of interesting loyalties. I've watched people triumph their loyalty to their denomination over their Savior. I've watched people praise other people who live well in the faith. And yet if a believer struggles and falls, that believer's marked until they breathe their last as a failure. There's no way for that believer to ever be restored for the faith for what they've done. Every kind of situation in between. I've seen believers, I've seen youth in Christian schools environments, evaluated post-salvation and identified by their failures, and I've seen those students identified by their successes, and I've seen those some students identified by their successes when, and publicly recognized when everyone around them knew of all their failures. In the milieu of all these good people who are saved, trying to do the right thing, there are still things inside of us that can cause us to take our eyes off of him who is within us. The spirit of God who seeks to explicate Christ to us so that we can pursue living like he lived. So if we put on love in these ways, the text concludes by a couple other things that will be perfunctory to our existence. Two more commands. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And the second imperative of verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word peace of Christ, obviously that's, that peace is sourced in Christ, it's found only in Christ. And the word rule here just literally means to control. It rules in us and it rules over us. One author said it's kind of like peace is an umpire. Someone's got to make the final call in this question that's being debated. Christ is the umpire between God and man. He's the mediator between God and man. He's the only one appointed by God to be that umpire. And when we understand that he came to die for our sin and we place our faith in him, and him alone as our Lord, that we understand he is the mediator. He's the umpire. He's the one that's come to control the sin situation and have victory over. There was death, burial, and resurrection. God reconciled everything to himself, whether in heaven or in earth by the blood of Christ, Paul says in Colossians. The whole world is clamoring for peace, but they're looking in all the wrong places, for there's one who is peace, and it's Christ, and I hope you know him. For those of you that put on love well, the peace of Christ is controlling you. you'll seek to live and maintenance the harmony of unity by allowing it to continue to control you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This word dwell is where we get our English word home or house. Let the word of Christ live in you. Let it take residence in you. Clear out a room in your heart just for the word. (laughs) And keep that room just for the word. If you go back to loving well, this will be a natural part of your existence. That room will always stay cleaned out. We're in that time of life right now where kids are coming and going like all the time. And I'm pretty sure that there's going to be at least two rooms in our house for the very near future that will always be full of everything that's not my stuff, (laughs) right? One of those rooms right now, you can barely open the door to get your head around to see what's in it. It's just people, kids in transition. We have a very, very clear purpose for that room and it's not that, but we love that stuff being there if we can help, but there's a clear purpose for that room in the future and we talk about its purpose all the time and one day that room will fulfill its purpose right? clear a room out in your heart for the word and keep it uncluttered let it dwell in you richly so peace is the controlling umpire and the word is the sustenance of the harmony of the body as it takes up residence in our hearts. It's the domestic stabilizer. It is our tutor for how how to live as a body together. So our relationship and activity is found in Christ as our identity. It's not found in the giftedness of a man. It's not found in the evil pulpits of the world. It's not found in the common grace, civilly good pulpits of the world. It's found in Christ and and Christ alone. And to Him and Him alone we pledge our allegiance. To Him and to Him alone we pledge our allegiance and to his message and to his cause. And when we do that, it's easier to shake off the rust of identity crises the church flirts with on a regular basis. And as we love well, we'll demonstrate compassion well, we'll live in peace well, and we'll enjoy the word well. Let's pray together. Lord, the cry of our heart is that we just grow in Christ's likeness I personally just have such a long way to go. Understanding not just the nature and the character of Christ, but really how he lived. How he maintenanced his own identity with his Father. With you, Lord. As we all learn together, I pray that we would do so with love and compassion. Seeking to maintenance this unity that the Spirit of God has produced. Help us, Lord, to continue to enjoy a worship when we're together and a fellowship as we encourage each other that looks and is these words in this text that we've examined this morning once again. May we be like the Thessalonians of old who were existing, not needing to be taught how to love because they were loving because they were taught out of God, taught of God how to love only help us lord to increase more and more in christ's name we pray amen